This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York, where today I'm recording this on Saturday, January 2nd, 2021. This is the first time ever I think I've, I am recording on Saturday, beginning recording on Saturday, usually recording on Friday, but I've been backed up a day or so because of the holiday, but it is a new year here in the world, and I woke up on January 1st, 2021, and COVID was still ripping the, the world apart. I thought maybe it would magically disappear in the new year. It has yet to, though. And now, with Wrestle Kingdom just two days away as I record this, leaders in Tokyo have requested a state of emergency declaration from their higher government in Japan as COVID cases and COVID deaths are on the rise in Tokyo and in Japan generally. New Japan Pro Wrestling hasn't made any public comment on the situation, but on the program today, we will also be touching on viewership for SmackDown over the last couple of weeks. Pro Wrestling Tees put out its top 25 sellers of the year of 2020. And on the back end, we'll go into the deep analysis and we'll touch on an article that I wrote a few days ago, a brief state of the business as the year came to an end. But first... An article that comes from Bloomberg was updated this morning reporting that Japan's central government held off from declaring a state of emergency in Tokyo and three adjacent prefectures, despite local authorities urging that virus czar Yasutoshi Nishimura to do so to contain an outbreak that is showing little sign of abating. Nishimura is quoted in the article saying, quote, We agree that the metropolitan area is in a situation severe enough to bring a state of emergency into sight, end quote, but no state of emergency has been declared just yet. According to data on OurWorldInData.com, new daily COVID deaths in Japan set record highs on several days throughout the month of December. The rolling seven-day average for daily new confirmed deaths from COVID in Japan is now well above the peak back in April or May, when throughout the spring, New Japan Pro Wrestling ran no events that were attended by live fans. The COVID death rate in Japan, though, still remains some for context, some 14 times lower than that of the United States. Now, Wrestle Kingdom is scheduled to happen on January 4th and January 5th in Tokyo, in the Tokyo Dome, as it does every year. But what about death rates in Tokyo itself? Death rates in Tokyo from COVID had been on the rise throughout December, but not quite to the high levels of COVID death rates that were seen in April and May. The Bloomberg article also notes that Japan briefly enacted a state of emergency during April and May in response to the initial wave of coronavirus cases. The entire country was under a state of emergency from April 7th until May 31st. Uh, By April 7th, though, New Japan Pro Wrestling had decided to stop running events entirely. They decided to do that by the beginning of March. New Japan ran uh, through the end of their tour at the end of February and then through March, April, and May, ran no events whatsoever. In June, they began to run some events with no fans in attendance. And then by middle 
of July began running events with limited capacity. But the point here is that New Japan earlier uh, in 2020 decided ahead of the government to stop running events before they were forced to do so by government regulations. It's worth noting that that was under the leadership of Harold May, who is no longer the president and CEO of New Japan. May left the company in October, and Takami Ohari has taken his place as president. So the sense that I'm getting now that we are so close to the time of Wrestle Kingdom, again, January 4th and January 5th, that if there is a state of emergency, if there is a shutdown of live events in Tokyo or in Japan generally, that that will happen sometime after January 5th. And that is not a certainty or a fact, but that's the impression that I'm getting. That there would be a rollout that would happen over the course of a few days, and that we are so near to the timing of Wrestle Kingdom that Wrestle Kingdom will probably go on as scheduled. However, we could see in the near future a shutdown of live events generally in the country. And if you look at the graphs that are on my Twitter or in the notebook at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics, you'll see graphs uh, showing the progression of the death rates in Japan and in Tokyo. And just to give you an idea of how differently the two countries are dealing with COVID, like I said earlier, the United States death rate on New Year's Day, which is the most recent day that there is data for the, the rolling average uh, per capita per million people was 20 times higher in the United States than it was in Japan. To put that in terms of real people without adjusting for the population, that's 2,500 people dying in the United States compared to Japan's 47 people dying in the United States. That's on an average day over the last seven days. Again, 2,500 to 47. And by the way, the Tokyo Dome, which probably, if it was filled with people in every seat, could contain somewhere around forty to 50,000 people. The Tokyo Dome is being limited this year to 5,000 people each day. New Japan was earlier looking to put between 16,000 and 20,000 people in the venue each day at around 40% capacity. But the Japanese government recently put a provisional cap on all events of 5,000. So I would expect Wrestle Kingdom to still go on, not 100%, but I would expect it to still go on with only 5,000 people in attendance, by the way. Uh, these are fans who cannot cheer and can only clap. And I'm sure masks will be worn. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what the atmosphere is like in such a big venue, baseball stadium dome, with only 5,000 people in attendance. But as, uh, as a Japanese wrestling fan who came up in the early 2000s, I, I am no stranger to quiet audiences at the Tokyo Dome. In other news, W Smackdown on Christmas Day was watched by over 3.3 million people on average over the course of the two-hour program. That's its highest audience since the debut episode on Fox back in October 2019. Smackdown benefited greatly from a huge rating for the NFL game that preceded it. The New Orleans Saints against the Minnesota Vikings did an audience of 20 million people across both Fox and the NFL Network. 20 million. I don't know what portion of that audience came from Fox. One would think a large part of it. Actually, stop the presses. Uh, I have found the page, the sports TV ratings page 
on Showbiz Daily that I otherwise almost never look at that does show 20 million, you know, 20.1 million viewers watching on Fox, 2 million watching on the NFL Network. Adults 18 to 49, 6.8 million watching the NFL on Fox, less than a million on the NFL Network. So from Fox's 20.1 million audience, uh, SmackDown converted over the course of their program, 3.3 million of them uh, compared to their usual about 2 million flat audience. And, and it's just occurring to me as I'm looking at this that we're getting actual numbers of 18 to 49 audience here, even a household rating, a household rating. So maybe that's where Dave is getting the, the count of homes from, maybe doing some math from the household rating. But I didn't even know it was here. So we've had ratings here all along probably that I need to go back and probably put into a spreadsheet. By the way, you can get the new Wrestling Viewership Spreadsheet 2.0, the brand new revamped redecorated, redesigned spreadsheet. You get access to that as part of your membership at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. I will give you exclusive access to the Google Sheet that I use every day. Yeah, it really is every day. <laughs> every day I open it up and probably do something with it. The, the previous sheet is being retired. It is still public. It is still viewable and accessible for all, but no longer will be updated. Only the new 2.0 spreadsheet will be updated going forward. And the only way to get access to it is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash But anyway, there's all this, this extra, extra numbers here that I didn't realize were here. But anyway, SmackDown on Christmas did its biggest audience since the debut of the program on Fox. SmackDown did a huge P1849 demo of 0.95, 0.95 compared to their usual 0.5 or 0.6. So almost doubling in the 18 to 49 audience. The first hour on average was viewed by over 4 million people. The second hour was down to about 2.5 million. So the second hour still at 500,000 people over what's normal for SmackDown, which is 2 million. So that was Christmas. That was Fox's gift to World Wrestling Entertainment. And then New Year's Day came on this most recently past Friday, January 1st. New Year's Day. It is a holiday. But this past Friday, WB Smackdown down to the normal 2 million viewers. The first hour, 1.9 million viewers. You can really round it up to 2 million. And then the second hour, 1.8 million, which comes to an average of 1.9 million viewers. Is the holiday a factor, though? Is, does New Year's Day have such an effect on wrestling viewership or on WB viewership that it should that we should look at this as a handicap and say, well, there was no conversion, apparently, of viewership after that huge lead-in from the NFL audience. But, but New Year's Day, maybe New Year's Day has a negative impact on the viewership. And let's look at the last time that SmackDown was airing on New Year's Day. That was on January 1st, 2019, when WWE SmackDown was airing on Tuesday on the USA Network. It did a pretty normal rating for the time in 2019. About 2 million even at that time, really the same size of audience despite being on the USA Network. Now granted, this is two years ago now, but did 2 million. Then the following week on January 8th, did 2 million again. Very similar, very similar audience. Very similar in the key demo relative to what it had been doing in surrounding ep episodes and surrounding weeks. You can see the uh, the table that I, I've put in the WrestleNomics notebook with conditional formatting. It's, you know, doing a sort of a, a, a red to, red means it's in the lower part of the percentile. Green means it's in the high part of the percentile. Yellow means it's right in the middle. And this program looks like it's right in the middle on January 1st, 2019. 
But maybe that's an anomaly. Let's look at another recent example, WWE Raw on January 1st, 2018. I think there might have been some hype around this episode because it is listed as a special episode when I was searching around for special episodes of W Raw. But January 1st, 2018, the viewership was 2.9 uh, 2. million viewers, let's call it. And that was up 4% from the trailing four weeks. Up 4% from the median of the trailing four weeks. So that Raw was not negatively impacted at all relative to previous weeks. In fact, the following week was very similar, down slightly. So I'm not sure if the lack of conversion of new viewers after having a lot of them apparently sample it can be chalked up to the fact that there was a holiday. I guess we'll see next week when there's no holiday on Friday night. But it doesn't look like having a huge lead-in from a highly viewed NFL game uh, has, at least in one week, had any lasting benefit to W Smackdown. Why is that? Uh, without getting into too much creative talk, I guess. Maybe a lot of it is that it's it's a lot of people who just happens to have the TV on. Uh, the pattern that you see where, where our one average is 4 million viewers and our two averages have, I think, 2.8 million viewers certainly leads you to think that there was a lot of tuning out as the program went on. I don't know. I, I just... I guess I think you know WWE is a pretty known quantity to to most potential viewers at this point, and I think whether you're watching WWE or not is not a question of whether or not you know what to expect. It's not as if I think millions of people tuned in and discovered something that they hadn't really been aware of or had forgotten about for a long time. You know, I think WWE is a known quantity, and and I'm not necessarily thinking that AEW would do much better if it were in such a situation. Because I don't see what the cultural hook is that would turn a new viewer on to feel like they had to watch next week. Wrestling has been in the culture in its current in its current incarnation for a, a number of years, even decades. I would say there's there's nothing particularly revolutionary about current WWE content relative to what it's been in the past. It reminds me to to think about an argument that I've made earlier uh, in 2020 and 2020, where I said that I, you know I think. What makes wrestling businesses boom are stars, but also it's when a wrestling product is presented in a way that changes people's expectations about what they imagined pro wrestling was. You know, and the long and short of it in terms of the examples of why I think there's truth to that is, look at the mid-80s, wrestling was revolutionized, yes, through Hulk Hogan and other stars, but also because wrestling was Vince, you'll love this, reimagined into a show business, into being more of a wacky entertainment, into being more of a family entertainment, kind of cartoonish, over-the-top, roided-up guys, where their their personas, their nicknames were personified, a, a time when the instincts of Vince McMahon uh, really were effective. And then you have the mid-to-late 90s, where things were revolutionized through being more uh, vulgar, racy, and edgy as opposed to what people imagined wrestling as before that, as kind of a kid's show. I think WWE probably missed an opportunity in the mid-2010s to revolutionize the perception of wrestling as being something that women could be the headline stars in. But anyway, if you turned on WWE SmackDown, or if you left on Fox for the first time, or left on Fox and saw WWE for the first time in a long time last week, Friday... 
you didn't see anything that necessarily bucked your impressions about what you thought of pro wrestling or what you thought of WWE. Or at least that's how I'm fitting the latest turn of events into my pre-existing ideology. In other news, 2019, at the end of 2019 and released in late January 2020, I released a WrestleNomics full year 2019 annual report with key metrics and opinions and insights which a lot of people liked, and it just so happened, luck would have it, that a lot of people were interested in wrestling business or in WWE business especially because like three days after I released this document, which is about 48 pages long with a lot of charts and graphs and then some, some writing about outlooks on the business, uh, I think it was, it was released on January 27th, and then on January 30th, it just so happened that George Barrios and Michelle Wilson, former co-presidents, of WWE were terminated from WWE and it caused a lot of um, volatility in the stock. The stock price dropped quite a bit and there was a lot of interest in WWE business. Um, I had a lot of people download it. I think we had a special attention concern about what, what WWE business was, was doing or trying to understand it. It was also like one or two weeks after AEW had its TV deal renewed with Warner Media. So I am going to do another full year review of the year that was, 2020, looking at the entire industry, or at least the major companies within it. And this year, I'm putting some of that Patreon money to good use. Uh, I'm uh, spending some money to uh, add to this report in a way that I did not add to it last year, let's say. I'll, I'll be able to, to talk about what exactly that means next week. Uh, trust me, it's not anything uh, uh, revolutionary or surprising. But some of the things that I plan to cover uh, will be the linear TV rights value of various wrestling properties, the TV distribution throughout the various regions in the world, TV viewership, of course, and maybe a select few demographics, maybe in other regions, pay-per-view buys as we know them today, subscription video subscriptions for the various uh, services that exist in the wrestling world, YouTube views, social media followers, whatever happened, whatever is around to scrape up as far as live event information in a year where there were very few or very limited live events due to the pandemic. Consumer products, as you know, there's there's three major ways that wrestling companies make money. That one, one is media. I already mentioned a ver- the various ways I'm going to look at media. I just talked about live events. And then the third one is consumer products. And PWTs, we'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes, I think, but PWTs put out its list of top 25 merchandise sellers. I'm also going to look into the major licensing partnerships that exist for the major companies. Google Web Search, which is, I think, an interesting indicator, suggester of of what's happening in the mind share of, of wrestling fans throughout the world. And you can isolate that to various regions, such as the United States. Mainly throughout the report, I'm going to be focusing on World Wrestling Entertainment, All Elite Wrestling, New Japan Pro Wrestling, Impact Wrestling, Ring of Honor, and New Japan Pro Wrestling. But for Google search, I might drill down a little bit deeper into, into sort of the next tier of wrestling brands throughout the world. And we just might drill into, into particular stars and personalities as well. The reception of major events, I looked at that last year too, but just looking at from sources like Cage Match, 
And yes, even the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, thumbs up, thumbs down. At least uh, comparing at least those two uh, sources. I suppose Grapple, the Grapple app could be another source. It would be nice if there was another source that I could think of that maybe wasn't so so thought of as a smart fan uh, community. I, I did some poking around last year, but I wasn't able to find anything that was sort of a database or a record of, you know, here's some feedback from wrestling fans who maybe aren't the kind of usual wrestling fans that we easily find opinions for throughout the internet. But anyway, I'll be looking at that again for major, major shows such as pay-per-views, NXT takeovers, major New Japan events, comparing the reception in 2020 to the reception of prior years. And looking at the wrestlers who had at least 10 matches for various companies, how many wrestlers basically are each of the companies putting to work. And then there should be a, a whole other section of opinions and insights, which will be more text. The first part, key metrics, will be a lot of charts, graphs, tables. And then the second half will be opinions and insights about various things that I think are important issues in the business of professional wrestling that, uh, that we learned more about in 2020. So look for that. I don't know when it'll be out. Hopefully late January. We'll see. The 2019 report is still out there. It's on WrestleNomics.com. If you click on the reports the reports button on the, the menu at the top of WrestleNomics.com. You can still get that, the 2019 report, if you want to see what, was, what, what it looked like last year. Another quick note about what I've been doing with some of the uh, contributions that generous patrons have been making at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. In fact, during this very recording, I've just gone downstairs here at WrestleNomics headquarters, and I, I picked up the latest delivery, which is a giant uh, green screen, which I... Uh, Maybe using in future. Uh, it's right behind me right now. It's uh, it's been uh, what's the op- It's been expanded so that it's it's uh, standing up right behind me right now here at the uh, Russellnomics studio room. Uh, hopefully, I will be using it soon for uh, Russellnomics projects, where I uh, maybe may or may not be uh, impersonating a weatherman. We'll see. And speaking of which, so that twenty twenty full year report that I'm just beginning to work on now. That will be provided to patrons at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. That will be part of their monthly support. Patrons will pay nothing extra. So I go back and forth between, should I say patrons or subscribers? What's, what's better branding? But anyway, those people who support already will pay nothing extra for the full year 2020 report. Uh, it will be sold separately as an individual uh, product, probably through PayHip. Uh, but all the supporters will get it included in the access to all the other things that they currently get. Anyway, Pro Wrestling Tees, as I mentioned earlier, put out its top 25 merchandise sellers for 2020. And Brody Lee surged to top the list at number one, as I'm sure a ton of people have been uh, eager to to get a Brody Lee shirt and support the family. Like, I understand the proceeds... For his shirts and for a, a number of others are, are going to the Huber family. But after Brody Lee, we have number two, Orange Cassidy. And I'm just reading this, by the way, off of a graphic that uh, Pro Wrestling Tees has put out there. But if you look at the Pro Wrestling Tees website and you go to the bestsellers list and you can click on yearly sellers, which I did on December 31st. And of course, I copied and pasted the, the text that, that was there and I put it into a spreadsheet. 
And if you look, a lot of the um, a lot of the listed sellers for various merchandise for various personalities, the seller. So, for example, the Orange Cassidy merchandise, the seller is listed as All Elite Wrestling. For the Sting shirt, the seller is listed as All Elite Wrestling. Uh, for the Inner Circle Stampede uh, Stadium Stampede shirt, the listed seller is AEW. Uh, for the Chris Jericho Le Champion neck bandana, the listed seller is, is uh, AEW. But for the Inner Circle Retro shirt, the listed seller is Jericho. And so there's, there seem to be different things. Okay, Kenny Omega, the listed seller, is AEW. So for some of these items, let's, let's take the Jericho items that seem more inconsistent. Some of the Jericho items are listed as being sold by AEW. Some of them are listed as being sold by Chris Jericho. Um, so I have no idea, but I, I'm curious how that all works out. Um, maybe different people have different deals where they're allowed to have uh, pro wrestling tees stores and others. Uh, their merchandise has to be sold by AEW. I don't know, but... Anyway, number one, Brody Lee. Number two, Orange Cassidy. Number three, Chris Jericho. Number four, Kenny Omega. Number five, Cody Rhodes. Number six, Inner Circle. Number seven, John Moxley. Number eight, Young Bucks. Number nine, Hangman Adam Page. And number 10, Owen Hart. So there's been some Owen Hart merchandise on Pro Wrestling Tees ever since the Dark Side of the Ring documentary about Owen Hart. So one would think that the, the top merchandise sellers here uh, probably reflect largely the top merchandise sellers for AEW. So AEW has its own online shop and are doing some venue merchandise sales, I understand, uh, at their events uh, in Jacksonville. So going further down uh, in the top 25, number 11, Sting, number 12, Darby Allen, number 13, The Bullet Club, still alive, number 14, Best Friends, Chuck and Trent, number 15, Matt Hardy, number 16, Randy Savage. I probably should have done this in reverse. But anyway, number 17, SoCal Uncensored SEU. Number 18, Lucha Brothers. Number 19, Steve Austin. Number 20, MJF. Number 21, CM Punk. Number 22, The Major Wrestling Figure Podcast. Number 23, Marty Skrull. Number 24, Danhausen. And number 25, Britt Baker. And Britt Baker, the only woman on the list, I believe. It probably gives you an idea of who are the top non-WWE U.S. bases. Does Impact Wrestling have people on Pro Wrestling Tees? They do. Yeah, in fact, there are, there are a number of uh, Impact Wrestling personalities who have shirts on Pro Wrestling Tees. And a number of others as well, including New Japan Pro Wrestling, Ring of Honor. We've mentioned Marty Skrull there. Uh, Lucha Libre, AAA. Doesn't look like there's any CMLL. Uh, a number of... U.S.-based independent promotions, uh, Major League Wrestling, MLW as well. But these uh, these top lists, so they, they have a weekly, monthly, and yearly top sellers pages. Uh, they're just dominated by people from AEW and sort of, sort of some nostalgia figures or people who are inactive but are legends like Randy Savage. Got some CM Punk in there as well. Anyway... And finally, we will talk about a brief state of the professional wrestling business as 2020 has now come to an end. So this was sprung out of a tweet from our friend in Canada, Holden Albright. And I think his thought was sprung from a tweet um, by Nick Aldis. And uh, I'm not looking at either of the tweets right now, but I, th I think there's something to the effect of, you know, 
maybe wrestling's popularity has diminished over time, but we have, uh, I'm going to put this in Brandon Thurston language, but, but we have a great deal of new media tools at our disposal and people are, are, are watching wrestling, uh, in, in all, all different ways. And it's so easy to engage with people. Uh, all we have to do is, you know, give them something good and maybe re-educate them about how good wrestling can be. And there's a, a great wealth of an audience to capture or to recapture. So anyway, I think that's a good jumping off point, or at least it motivated me to have a lot of thoughts to uh, to explain how the, the pro wrestling, especially the media pro wrestling, and by media I just mean, well, I, I mean mainly TV, but, but we're also going to get into some other things that are media as well. And when we say media, we generally just mean video, whether that video is on YouTube or whether that video is through cable TV. But it, but I was uh, you know sprung to explain how the professional wrestling business works today uh, in 2020 or now in 2021. Um, because I, and I think I you know I've seen some some thoughts and comments from other people you know who I know who are wrestlers about how you know you know cable is dying or something like that and and that that would seem to be the case if you are someone you know in their 20s or 30s and maybe you don't subscribe to cable or if you're like me I've never subscribed to traditional cable and uh, maybe you consume most of the the video that you consume through through YouTube or through Netflix or through Hulu or Disney Plus or HBO Max or whatever and you don't cons- you don't you know use cable or satellite TV so you know that that's a that's an old dying medium but uh, things are, are a little bit different a little bit more complicated than that uh, so anyway the popularity of wrestling let's talk a little bit about that first and WWE is obviously the biggest player in the professional wrestling business globally. Uh, but, but the business of WWE, uh, their popularity, not their revenues, not their profits, but their popularity has declined over the last three or four years. And I can say that based on consistent annual declines in ticket sales, in merchandise, in Google web search. You can look at how a new form of media like the WWE Network lost subscribers throughout 2019 in year of year comparisons. And I can paint a admittedly complicated picture of raw W Raw's viewership to show how uh, compared to other trends in the television world, W Raw, its viewership has declined worse than TV overall, at least since 2019. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like, you know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, oh, hey, look at some random cards or whatever. But if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards, it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing, you know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. 
You get a display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the Slap Pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great Slap Packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club Slap Packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off again that's arena club.com slash vow net arena club.com slash vow net for 10 percent off your first purchase on arena club and we thank them for sponsoring the voices of wrestling podcast network what's going on guys this is rich from the flagship podcast here on the voice of wrestling podcast Network. If I could have a moment of your time, I'd like to tell you about one of our sponsors, Eufy Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock is a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell, all three-in-one, offering you triple security. So you can have everything in one device rather than installing many pieces on your front door. But it's not just for security. The Eufy Video Lock is also for convenience. No more concerns about losing keys, and you can assign passwords to your family members and see them coming back home via the integrated cameras. Some other great features we love about the Eufy Video Lock is it is easy to install and set up with just a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. Keyless entry, no more fumbling for keys when your hands are full. You never have to worry about kids losing keys or passing among renters. You also have 0.3 second, 0.3 second fingerprint recognition and one second unlocking again 0.3 seconds it's going to recognize your fingerprints and in one second it's going to unlock and with the ai self-learning chip embedded the more you use it the more accurate it will be also no battery anxiety you have a rechargeable battery in there that could last around four months and you will get a low battery notification before it runs out. Uh, passcode unlocking a remote control with the 2K clear sight. See who's at your door and control from anywhere through the Eufy app. With enhanced night vision, you can have optimized view even in the evening. You can also secure your package delivery by view and two-way audio. And then best of all, no monthly fee. A bunch of other brands out there are going to charge you a monthly fee. You have your recordings locally and you never have to pay for storage. Customer service. Eufy's got you handled as well. They are on standby for you 24-7 so you can enjoy a worry-free experience with an 18-month warranty, all backed by their professional customer service team. Contact them anytime by telephone, email, or live chat. Personally, as a homeowner, I love my Eufy video lock. I have the ability to see what's going on when I'm not home, when packages have has arrived, and, and really the thing I love the most about it, the ease of being able to lock and unlock my doors without having to fumble with my keys and reach in my pocket or wait, no crap, they're in my backpack, all that sort of stuff. All this is happening while my dogs are barking at me. You know what? Not anymore with the UV video lock. 
I touch it. 0.3 second fingerprint recognition. One second. Door is unlocked. Much, much easier. So if you want to jump on board with Eufy Video Lock, search Eufy Video Lock. That is E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Again, that's Eufy Video Lock. E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. So I, I look at those things and I say, I, I firmly believe that WWE's popularity has declined since about 2017 or so. But WWE nonetheless is still the industry leader. WWE attracts the vast majority of the eyeballs and the watch time globally. And they attract and collect the vast majority of the revenue. WWE will report around one billion dollars in revenue when they report the next report will be in february or maybe even late january but probably early february they'll come out with their q4 and full year 2020 report and they'll probably have a total of around one billion dollars in revenue to report i would estimate that all elite wrestling aew w's new competitor generates i don't know around 10 percent of that amount when you think about the tv deals that they have a little bit of live event revenue early in the year, and some consumer products revenue, you know, and, and some, some sponsorship revenue, some revenue from uh, on-air sponsorships, some revenue from uh, digital sponsorships, a little bit of YouTube money. You know, maybe they get to $100 million in revenue on the year. I have no idea if AW is profitable. Uh, I will give that some thought later uh, in the month. So there's WWE, there's AEW, and then, then likely the third... Uh, the, the third highest revenue generating wrestling company in the world, probably New Japan Pro Wrestling. In its most recent non-COVID physical year, we know that they generated the equivalent of around $53 million in revenue. $53 million on a whole year. That's about 5%. 5% of what WWE will report this year. It's, it's around 5% of what WWE reported in a similar uh, range of time. This is fiscal year 2019 for New Japan. Uh, a year when WWE reported, you know, it's not a perfect uh, timeline overlap, but WWE reported around 900 or $960 million in revenue in its fiscal year uh, around that, that equivalent time. New Japan generates substantially less because it is a still mainly live event driven business, whereas WWE and AEW are media driven businesses. That means they're their biggest stream of revenue is television, is media. So the business model of the biggest wrestling companies has transformed. That's a new uh, uh, occurrence. That's a new circumstance. Or it's, it's a circumstance that's gradually come to be what it is today. The business model for those biggest wrestling companies has transformed drastically over the last several years or over the last couple of decades, especially you know since the, the time that WCW went out of business. No longer is pro wrestling, uh, in terms of the the, the the bare economics. No longer is U.S. pro wrestling such a destination business. And by destination business, I mean it's a, you know the, the business that uh, maybe people of my age grew up on and older, um, where promotions are, they have TV programs and they're a loss leader. Maybe they make a little bit of, of money on it, but it probably costs more to produce than, they are, than they're getting paid for it. But it's a loss leader. It's a promotional tool to promote the sales of tickets, and of pay-per-views and maybe merchandise. Um, 
And, and this really, as we sit here today, now in January 2021, this raises questions about what, what really is the optimal creative approach for wrestling storytelling in this environment where it's not about the TV builds to the pay-per-view. I mean, it is still, but is, is that the right approach to take in, in a modern uh, pro wrestling economy where TV is generating far more revenue for you than any other source and is doing things like uh, AEW has done with The Winter Is Coming, a special episode of Dynamite or even NXT with its special episode of Howling Havoc. Is that... Uh, a sufficient approach to treating TV as your biggest revenue stream. But that's another discussion. What we're talking about here is just sort of a basic overview of how the pro wrestling media economy works and how a progressively large portion of these major U.S. wrestling companies, their revenue comes more and more from television broadcast rights. And that has little to do with anything that wrestling companies have accomplished and has more to do with the external effects brought on by by new media and by uh, more and more consumers feeling like it's not essential to have cable television in their homes. So cable homes have diminished, and because of that, largely, viewership has diminished, and the most viewed programs, therefore, have become increasingly valuable to cable networks. And top wrestling programs like WWE Raw, WWE SmackDown, to a somewhat lesser extent, AEW Dynamite, and to a somewhat lesser extent, WNXT. Those are, those are four big programs for uh, the USA Network, TNT, and Fox in terms of the large audiences, especially in the key demographic that they're able to deliver. But why are big programs, highly viewed programs, so valuable to cable networks? Why has that changed over time? Because to maintain their diminishing subscriber bases, cable networks like the USA Network, or even Fox, which is nonetheless, uh, you can get it over the air, is still charging affiliate fees to cable systems to carry Fox. But in order for the USA Network and TNT and Fox, even Access, in order for those networks and the cable systems uh, that carry those networks, in order for them to maintain their diminishing subscriber bases, they're increasingly reliant on the highly viewed programs that people watch live. If I'm somebody who watches WWE, Raw, and NXT all the time, it's really essential to me that I have live access to the USA Network. If I'm somebody who uh, watches AW Dynamite every week, it's really essential to me that I have access to TNT. So I'm a little bit more likely to keep my cable subscription if I'm a regular viewer, especially a live viewer. I don't, I don't just watch it on, on DVR and skip through the commercials. But especially if I'm a live viewer of these programs, it makes me want to keep uh, my cable subscription. And if I'm watching live, I'm more likely to consume the commercials, which is another way that cable networks generate revenue. And that function, viewing program that is programming that is happening live right now seems to be emerging as cable TV's enduring function for consumers. Like I, I think that's the, the future of linear TV. I don't know if linear TV goes away entirely. It becomes this specialized medium that we use to watch stuff live, especially sports and especially news. If you look at the the top uh, programs throughout 2020, especially 2020, 
it's dominated by news. News viewership, while the, while the rest of TV, the rest of the TV landscape, everything is down year over year, news was up in 2020. So sports and news, because they're depicting what's happening live, become really valuable to cable TV. As opposed to scripted entertainment, you know, movies and, and TV shows, which you can find on Netflix, on Hulu, etc. Everybody's scrambling to set up their streaming service. Those services have largely absorbed the time that viewers used to spend watching scripted programming on cable. Because scripted entertainment can be watched just about any time on demand. It doesn't need to be necessarily watched live. Or like live as the first run is actually airing. You know, Netflix has realized that, that the, the first run broadcast isn't even necessary. They just drop you know, an entire season of a program on Netflix instantly. And you watch it whenever you want. Watch an entire season in one sitting if you want. Scripted entertainment was filmed and edited a long time ago. But live sports and news, those are moments and stories and games that are happening right now, right when you watch them. So streaming services are swallowing up the scripted entertainment watching. Cable still holding on to the viewership that involves stuff that's happening live and it's important to watch it live. So further back in time, and the further back in time you go, the more, the more this is true, that sports and news were not as important to cable TV because there was this vast uh, array of scripted entertainment that people had no other way to consume but through linear TV, cable TV, or, or over the air. I guess to, to be pedantic, there was, there's home entertainment, there's... Uh, video cassettes and DVDs, but those were relatively expensive compared to streaming services that involve no physical media. So if I'm, let's say, Vince McMahon back in the 90s, there's no streaming video technology, it's really important to me that I have a TV show because I make the vast majority of my revenue from selling tickets to my events, and I make some money from merchandise and from licensing deals for action figures and things like that. But without my TV programs, nobody knows who I am. So it's, it's super essential that I get on TV. And in fact, I'm, it's so essential that I get on TV that I'm willing to pay for the TV time slots that I, that I need to have to get my content and my intellectual property and my stars out there. So I grew up in the, in the late 90s, or late 90s. Well, the, <clears throat> I grew up in the early 90s, at least, uh, watching WF Superstars on my local Fox affiliate. A time slot that the WF paid to have. It was paid programming. It was an infomercial. And yes, there were commercials uh, between the breaks. I don't know if, if WF was selling that ad space or what. But the WF was paying for many of its time slots in syndication around the country because it was so essential that it be on TV. Now, WF at the same time was on the USA Network. And maybe there was some revenue being gained from, from programs like Primetime Wrestling in the earlier days of WF Raw and uh, All American, right? On uh, I think that was on Sundays, and there might have been some revenue going to the WF for that, but it's minute uh, compared to what they're doing today. And in fact, WF Raw is the first program where uh, WF starts to do sometimes live broadcast programming. In fact, and this is something that we just sort of mentioned in passing when I was doing the, the minute by minute uh, viewership stream with Mookie, was that you know when I watch WF Raw and the 
or WF uh, Superstars in the early 90s, I thought that was live. I had no idea that it wasn't live, you know. Um, I thought American Gladiators that came on after it was live. This distinction that seems so obvious today was not even being made by me, and I think people older than me, probably including adults, about whether a given program was actually happening as you were watching it. A distinction that today makes a program so valuable. But anyway, what changed is that scripted entertainment, which makes up so much of what cable TV was offering, first of all became better to consume through DVR when DVR appeared. I would say from a little bit in the late 90s and especially uh, after 2000. It's better to consume scripted entertainment on DVR because you can watch it whenever you want to watch it. And you can fast forward through the commercials that nobody wants to see anyway. It became less essential to watch scripted entertainment when it was running first on the on the cable channel that it was being broadcast on. But it was being broadcast on the cable channel and I at least had to have a cable subscription to record it with my DVR. But then things like Netflix emerged and I no longer had to have a cable subscription at all to watch a variety of scripted entertainment programs. So the necessity to have a cable subscription diminished. And now today, the main reasons compelling me to have a cable subscription is so that I can watch the things that are happening in real time, sports and news. So that's why live sports like the NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL, and pro wrestling are able to attract increasingly huge TV sports rights fees. And particularly in the case of pro wrestling, the dynamic of dependency changed in that WF used to be the one who was highly dependent on the TV networks that it was broadcasting on. TV networks didn't need the WF that much. There's plenty of other content. There's scripted entertainment that people had no choice but to watch as it was broadcast. The networks didn't need the WF very much. And the WF absolutely needed the TV networks. Otherwise, the WF was irrelevant. But now, the TV networks badly need content that airs live, like WWE or AEW. And they're airing their content live, and the results are happening right there before our eyes. And this, by the way, I think is where wrestling uh, overlaps the space between sports and scripted entertainment. I think people are watching uh, wrestling on DVR in greater proportion than they are watching other legit sports on DVR because wrestling to some degree is more like scripted entertainment and then I can watch it later as opposed to having to watch it live more like a movie or a or a TV drama there's something to to gain or to be entertained by by watching the story unfold and I think people generally feel less that way about legit sports you don't really hear people saying about an NFL game, for example. Oh, you know, after it just happened, no spoilers, you know. But with wrestling, we do. And certainly with scripted entertainment, we do. So now that I think I've sufficiently hammered you over the head with a point, uh, you know, WWE is going to now, in this, this year, this recently past year of 2020, will get the majority of its revenue this year from TV rights fees. Now, that might not have been the case if there was no COVID, it might be really close. Other, if there wasn't COVID and there was live event revenue, but 
WWE is getting guaranteed escalating fees. So that means that the fees in 2021 are going to be higher than the fees in 2020 and so on for 2022 and so on. So it's not just in 2020 because of COVID that WWE is going to get the majority of its revenue from TV. And because of this enormous revenue that's coming in, a revenue that's coming in with not much cost to WWE, I mean, they could increase their production cost, I guess, if they wanted to, because they have enormous, you know, they have growing revenue related to TV. They already do it quite expensively. But because of the increased revenue, they're going to be, uh, have their most profitable year ever, adjusted for inflation. WWE in 2020 was more profitable than it was in the best year of the Attitude Era. That's 2020, despite uh, diminishing popularity, despite not being able to do WrestleMania in front of paying fans. So while we can talk about how cable TV is a dying medium, it's actually making pro wrestling more profitable, more lucrative than ever. And whether or not AEW was profitable in 2020, I don't know, but it was one of the, the, the live sports rights value in the TV market is one of the necessary conditions that motivated Tony Khan to launch All Elite Wrestling because of the opportunity that was there for a second wrestling brand that was providing live content to a major cable network. But cable subscriptions are declining, especially uh, in this year, in this time of COVID. People have embraced streaming services more. People have continued to cancel their cable subscriptions. So wrestling may be getting great money from cable now, but what happens, what happens when cable actually declines completely and goes away and they don't have any money anymore to give to wrestling companies? What happens then? Well, I'm skeptical that uh, cable TV will truly go away. I think what happens with, um, what happens more often when there's a new technology is not that it's uh, totally makes useless the previous technology, but that it marginalizes the old technology. So email didn't destroy uh, the mail technology. It merely relegated it to packages or other things that had to be delivered in physical form. Now, every now and then there, there is a, a telegraph and a typewriter, which become completely obsolete in the light of new technology. Whatever ends up happening, I think even if cable subscribers were to evaporate entirely, I don't see the value of highly viewed live content diminishing that much. Big live audiences, I think, will be highly monetized one way or another. And if the Fang companies, that's Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, if those companies ever really get involved in live sports bidding, Amazon's involved a little bit. They have these digital rights to some NFL games, but they're not competing for the exclusive rights, at least not yet, to take them away from the big TV networks. But if that happens, if the Fang companies get involved in bidding for sports rights, that's a topic that was explored a little bit on the most recent WWE earnings call. If that happens, that would only drive sports rights bidding even higher because there would be more very wealthy suitors interested in the property. Now, an, another thing that I think it's important to understand is that while, yes, there's, there's clearly a ton of watch time and engagement that's happening digitally uh, for, for many wrestling brands, that digital 
consumption, though, drives a lot less revenue per unit of time, even for WWE. Um, you know, even if you live in an economy where the ad rates on YouTube are really high, an hour, let's say, of watching WWE content on YouTube is probably worth about 5% of what it's worth if you watch an hour of Raw. So if you spend the same amount of time watching YouTube as you, as you, as you would watching Raw, it's worth about 5% to WWE on YouTube as it would be if you'd watched it on Raw. And that's kind of theoretical because it's not as if you know, WWE's TV rights fees are guaranteed money. Uh, but it's, it's, it's more appropriate to say that that's what it's worth to the, the TV network, I guess. But it's the TV network that is paying WWE. But the point here is that YouTube is merely an ad platform. That's the only way YouTube makes money. Other than, you know, I'm not talking about YouTube TV. I'm just talking about when you watch you know, a clip on WWE's YouTube channel. Or if you spend an hour, hours watching stuff on WWE's YouTube channel. But the thing that we forget, in, in light of the well-justified hype around Netflix and other streaming services, the thing that we forget is, you know, a- ask yourself, what is the biggest subscription video service in the United States, or in, in the world, for that matter? And the answer is, it's not Netflix, it's not Hulu, it's not Disney+, Plus, it's not Amazon Prime. Maybe, maybe it is Amazon Prime, actually. Uh, but let's, let's forget Amazon Prime. Let's talk about just, just things that are strictly video. That's, that, that's, that's their main product. Amazon Prime is giving us preferential rates on shipping. But what's the biggest video subscription service in the world other than Amazon Prime? Uh, in terms of number of subscribers, it's still, for now, cable slash satellite TV. And even, even if we compare what's got more U.S. subscribers, Netflix or the USA Network and TNT? On its most recent report, Netflix reported that it has 73 million subscribers between the U.S. and Canada. So the vast majority of those are probably U.S. 73 million. 73 million. So you got just under 73 million homes in the U.S. have Netflix. But major cable networks like the USA Network and TNT, for now at least, have the edge. In 2020... USA Network and TNT are still in more than 80 million homes, each, each, because they're just, you know, those are channels that are just part of a cable package. Now, maybe in 2021 or 2022, those, those two numbers intersect, and Netflix starts to uh, surpass the biggest cable networks. But for now, there's still more homes with access to major cable networks like the USA Network and TNT than there are homes to have Netflix. Now, I'm sure uh, that's largely being carried by those P50 Plus homes, so you can get an idea of where the future is going. But the point is, cable networks, yes, they sell ads, and we spend all this time talking about the P18 to 49 demographic. Why? Because it's important to advertisers. But advertising makes up a minority, advertising makes up a minority of NBC Universal's cable revenue. NBC Universal makes the majority of its revenue from distribution fees, from the fees that they charge your local cable or satellite company to carry networks like the USA Network. And it's the same thing for Turner. For Fox Broadcast, it is more complicated because they make uh, the majority of their 
revenue from advertising, but about a third of their revenue comes from affiliate fees. But the point is, if um, you're watching the clips of, of Raw the next day on YouTube, WWE is making, not just because the, the ad rates are lower, but WWE is, I guess we could say, driving far less revenue because they're just driving some pretty low ad rates when you're watching clips on YouTube. When you're watching Raw on cable TV, they're driving subscriber rates for the cable network and they're driving advertising for the cable network. Advertising, by the way, at far higher ad rates. So I, I hope that gives you an idea of why cable, this dying medium, uh, is making pro wrestling so lucrative. Now, with that said, and to think more about just the overall popularity and atmosphere of the business, um, I, I think the time spent on wrestling is probably stable and maybe it's even growing. Uh, w is still easily making up the majority of, of the time that is being spent watching or engaging with wrestling. But there's a, a wide variety of wrestling brands that are probably making up a larger minority of the time that's being spent. Uh, a larger minority than at any time since uh, the end of WCW in 2001. And that's even more likely, I think, to be the case, given the introduction of AEW on cable since October 2019. And I think uh, it's generally a good time for wrestling, quality of the current content notwithstanding. It's a great time to be a fan because fans have more easy and low-cost access to a wide variety of current and historical wrestling content than ever. There's an enormous supply of wrestling footage for free on YouTube for you to watch. Uh, every wrestling company of note that's got a substantial archival video library, they've got a streaming service. You know how much it costs? $10 a month or less. Whereas, you know, back in the day, I had to spend, you know, $10 on a, on a two-hour videotape. And it was, it was probably like a, a six-generation copy that had terrible video quality. Now you've got, you know, HD or close to HD video quality on everything. At least the things that are coming directly from the wrestling companies. And for wrestlers, creative fulfillment, notwithstanding, it's a great time to be a wrestler. There are more living wage jobs for wrestlers in the industry than at any time since the fall of the territories. And that is the case as we, as we head towards this time where, you know, after COVID, we don't know, maybe W will cut back on some of its house shows, maybe all of its, almost all of its house shows, who knows? Uh, AEW doesn't give any signal that they're ever going to run any house shows that looks like they're only going to do tv because that's where uh, money is generated media revenue is generated i should say so that means that there are more jobs and there are more jobs with less travel and time away from home and physical wear and tear required and while there's probably going to be fewer house shows in we and that means uh far fewer house show fees paid to wrestlers for appearing on those house shows and while those fees may disappear, the competition for talent among the major companies is tremendous. And that should result in increased salaries. And in fact, it probably already has. So a, a pretty good time to be a fan, a good time to be a wrestler. And at the independent level that I'm pretty familiar with, where many of today's top stars in wrestling started, uh, wrestlers and promotions at the independent level, they're empowered and also... They, are, they face hazards with regard to social media. 
But social media obviously allows wrestlers and promotions and fans to connect with one another like never before. And for wrestlers, there's this endless mentioned uh, uh, archival library of video that's low cost and easy to access and it's at your fingertips to study. And I think that largely explains why wrestling styles have become so assimilated in recent years because you can watch anything from any era at any time for a fairly low cost. Now, independent uh, wrestling promotions have been hurt by the, the fierce competition for talent among the top companies, uh, whereas independent wrestling was used to benefiting from this under-harvested talent pool when WWE didn't really care for independent wrestlers. All of them were sort of left to the indies to, to, to do great work, and independent promotions benefited from that and built strong brands. Now, a lot of that talent has been harvested and is no longer available to independent promotions, but they got to build these pretty strong brands in the meantime that aren't going anywhere. Now, it's, it's easy to destroy a brand, but nonetheless, the brands have been created and the, and the social media roots have uh, grown, you know, especially for the companies that are trying to appeal to a global fan base and who are trying to sell video content around the world. But the competition for talent at the top level should motivate independent promotions to be very eager to create new independent stars. All the wrestlers that the top prestige indies, the super indies used to book, those slots are all vacated, largely vacated. And that means that the next crop of independent stars should have plenty of opportunities to try to fill those vacated spots. So it is a good time to be a fan a top wrestler, and it's a good time to be an independent wrestler. Is it a good time to be an independent wrestling promoter? Well, you know, the, the enormous time that people spend using the internet, we've all got smartphones in our pockets now that cause us to spend a tremendous amount of time online, probably more than is healthy. But the time that people spend online empowers uh, ambitious indies to monetize video, in various ad and subscriber supported platforms. And there's companies like Fight that work with a variety of wrestling companies, including indies, to stream live pay-per-views. And then there's uh, other companies like uh, High Spots Wrestling Network and IWTV. I've done some limited work for IWTV. But the IWTV is live streaming a lot of its partners' events. And I expect before long, just, you know, live streaming an event for most any indie is just going to become... You know, it's behind a paywall. It's just going to become commonplace uh, in wrestling. Yeah, you know, maybe with, with some outliers like PWG and Shimmer. But all this allows relatively small companies to monetize not just live events. Like I said, I said earlier, there's three major ways that wrestling companies can generate revenue. Media, live events, consumer products. And independent promotions, yeah, they could sell DVDs, I guess. But they were kind of constricted. They were more so constricted to being a live event business. And you can only sell tickets to people who uh, are, are willing to come to your venue. So they're, they're const- you know, those fans are constricted by travel. But if you're able to monetize video, there's no limit globally to who you can sell to. So you can sell tickets to people who are in your local area or people who are willing to travel to your local area. But you can sell video to anybody in the world. Now you can sell DVDs, but that's pretty expensive. You have to create the product, the physical media. You have to ship it to somebody internationally that, that gets really expensive. 
But streaming video technology allows these relatively small companies to not just be a live event business, but to be a, a more monetized video business that can distribute content globally at a much lower cost. So that's just about all I have for the first episode here of WrestleNomics Radio in 2021. Something that I'll just touch on briefly. I'll try to do it briefly without expanding on it. But that I, something that I'm starting to realize at the beginning of this year is that we, maybe we need to think more about the kinds of content that drive ad revenue and the kinds of content that drive direct-to-consumer revenue. Now, maybe this is just a, a bias from my distaste for, for ad revenue, but something I think to think about uh, at the independent level and at the higher top levels of professional wrestling. And that may be something I'll discuss in the future. I hope everyone has a good new year. I hope everyone uh, has a better 2021 than we had a 2020. I hope wrestling has a better 2021. So thanks as always for listening. Thanks to all the supporters at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. You can follow me. Well, wait, wait, wait. Let's do this in the right order. You can follow WrestleNomics at WrestleNomics. You can follow me at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston. I will talk to you next time.